So three years, almost three years ago, I was anticipating, it was three years ago, I was anticipating this retirement plan I had, right? And uh, so my expectation was that I would have all this extra time in my life and there were things I could do like go for bike rides and stuff. And so one of my ambitions uh, in that retirement window was I was going to take my old, speaking of the bicycle from the 70s, uh, this bike is a Univega Viva Sport manufactured in 1978. And if you were to go online and look for this bicycle today, um, you could probably buy one for a couple hundred bucks. I really don't know um, how much it costs because this bike has zero really financial value to me. But I wanted to restore it because it was a graduation gift when I finished my doctorate back in 79. And so my family got together. My father-in-law kind of instigated this thing and um, got people to donate some money. And, and they bought me a bicycle as a graduation gift. Is that an awesome graduation gift? Yeah, yeah some of you don't, aren't impressed with it, but I was. And um, I rode this bike for a number of years. And then it got replaced by the latest, greatest, newest thing. And uh, I'm embarrassed to tell you how much my, my bike costs that I'm riding now. Um, but my intention was to restore this bicycle. And so I got started and uh, took all the parts off. All the pieces, all the parts, almost all of them, handlebars still attached. But I took it all apart and I, and I started cleaning Got to clean everything, get the rust off, get the dirt off, clean it all up. And there's parts of it, like down here, in what's called the bottom bracket. Ow! Down in here, I, at some point I'm going to need to do what, Ed? Regrease it, because that grease is still in there from 1978. And so, the whole idea of restoring the bicycle was to return it to its pristine former glory. And even restored and returned to its pristine former glory, it would still be worth uh, about, <laughs> I don't want to tell you, in comparison to what I'm writing now, it has very little financial worth. But it has that sentimental value to restore it. You know, God is in the restoration business, Right? God is in the restoration business. He's in the business of restoring lives. And if you look at the people of God throughout the Old Testament, one of the themes that runs through there is that God is in the business of restoring nations. And in fact, as we look at the chronicles of the kings in 1st and 2nd Samuel, 1st and 2nd Kings, 1st and 2nd Chronicles, the story of God's dealing with the nation of Israel and the kings, you see a consistent pattern of God trying to restore and rebuild and return. God's constant call to His people is to return to me, return to me, return to me. And the implication is when God's calling for His people to return is what? They've moved away. They've left. They've, they've drifted or whatever. And so God's in the, in the restoration business. And I found myself thinking about that. Over the last few weeks in this whole time of the election and all the turmoil and everything that's going on, what would it take for God to restore the United States of America? <laughs> it would take a major miracle, Ed. And we're going to talk about that major miracle here this morning. Um, 
Arnold Toynbee was a British historian. Arnold Toynbee uh, wrote a 12-volume set of books on the rise and fall of civilizations. 12 volumes. That's a lot of research, a lot of study, right? And one of the things that he said that I've found fascinating and interesting, and I think I put this in your notes if you have your notes this morning, he says, all great civilizations rise and fall. All great civilizations rise and fall. And that includes great civilizations like Rome, Greece, the United States of America. All nations rise and fall. And an autopsy of history would show that all great nations commit suicide. British historian, 12 volumes of study all the great nations of history. And his conclusion is one simple thought, is all nations, come, they fall because they do what? Commit suicide. So do nations fall because of outside influences? Or do they fall from inside influences? Suicide. And so, if, if you think of the history of God's people in the Old Testament, you think of the nation's first king under a guy whose name was Saul. Okay, there you go. Got to dig back in that history a little bit. So, the people's choice, of course, was this tall, good-looking, strong man, Saul. And it was not until David became the king that glory shined on the nation of Israel, right? David, in spite of all his flaws, all his failures, his sin, his disappointments, when you think of King David, like me, you probably think of one phrase. He was a man after God's own heart. David served God with a whole heart. Sadly, his son Solomon, who had his own glory, who had his own great reign, and yet because of the influence of foreign wives and other issues in his life, Instead of serving God with a whole heart, he served God with half a heart. He was half-hearted. And sadly, in the next generation, his son Rehoboam, what happened after Solomon died? The kingdom split. His son Rehoboam taking half the southern two tribes, Judah and Benjamin. And uh, Rehoboam and then Jeroboam took the other ten tribes, what then became Israel's. So then I have this divided kingdom. So we go from King David, who served God with a whole heart, Solomon with a half heart, and Rehoboam with no heart. I was thinking this morning I'd do a sermon next week on those three guys, because that, that just captures so much in our culture today and in our churches. And as you read through the history of Israel and Judah, you hear these phrases over and over again of, of the kings. He did evil in the sight of the Lord. Forty-one times that phrase is used of the kings. Forty-one times he did evil in the sight of the Lord. Or it would say, he, walked, he did not walk in the ways of the Lord. Or it would say, he walked in the ways of his father. And there's that constant theme. And so along the way, thankfully, there's a few good kings. But most of the time, they didn't live up to the standard, which was always King David. And so... I found myself wondering, 
Are there lessons for us to learn? Are there lessons for the United States of America to learn from God's people in the Old Testament? And there's kind of an obvious answer to that question, I think. Yeah. And so what I want to do this morning is take you to 2 Kings chapter 17. And my original plan, my original working sermon title on Monday was how to, dest- how to destroy a nation. And I was planning and thinking that we were going to talk about the five ingredients that bring destruction to a nation. And along about Tuesday afternoon, Wednesday morning, somewhere in that window, um, I was impressed that that's kind of a negative way to approach this topic. And so I flipped it, and I want, to, want you to think this morning about how to restore a nation. I'm learning how to restore a bicycle. It takes time. It takes patience. There's new skills I need to learn. I've never taken a bottom bracket apart. I don't even have the right tools. And in a similar vein, if we're going to restore the nation in which we live, there's some lessons that we can learn from the people of God in the Old Testament. And so I want you to come this morning to 2 Kings chapter 7, 17, because God tells us here exactly why He judged Israel and Judah. And I believe we can learn lessons from what it says. 2 Kings 17 begins, and we're told it was the twelfth year of Ahaz, king of Judah. That's the southern two tribes, right? Kind of keep Judah and Israel. Israel's the northern ten, Judah's the southern two. Hosea, the son of Ella, became king over Israel and Samaria. So he's reigning over the ten tribes. He reigned nine years. He did evil in the sight of the Lord. What a shock. Only not as the kings of Israel who were before him. He set a new standard. Shalmaneser, king of Assyria, came up against him, and Hosea became his servant and paid him tribute. But the king of Assyria found conspiracy in Hosea, who had sent messengers to So, king of Egypt, and had offered no tribute to the king of Assyria, as he had done year by year. So, what was the result? King of Assyria shut him up and bound him in prison. Then the king of Assyria invaded the whole land and went up to Samaria and besieged it three years. In the ninth year of Hosea, the king of Assyria captured Samaria and carried Israel away into exile to Assyria and settled them in Hala and Haber on the river Kozen and in the cities of the Medes. Now this came about... Ah, here's the key word. What's the next word in your Bible? Because. At least if it's like mine. Now this came about because. Why did God do this? Because the sons of Israel had sinned against the Lord their God, who had brought them up from the land of Egypt, from under the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And they had feared other gods and walked in the customs of the nations whom the Lord had driven out before the sons of Israel and in the customs of the kings of Israel, which they had introduced. The sons of Israel did things secretly which were not right against the Lord their God. Anything about that sentence strike you as a little bizarre? How do you do stuff secretly when God is omnipresent, all-knowing? You know, that just kind of, I read that sentence and I thought, well, that's, that's, that's interesting. How do you do that secret thing? Uh, I don't know how they did that. They did things secretly which were not right against the Lord their God. Moreover, they built for themselves high places in all their towns from watchtower to fortified city. Pillars and ashram on every high hill and under every green tree. 
And there they burned incense on all the high places as the nations did, which the Lord had carried away to exile before them. And they did evil things, provoking the Lord. They served idols concerning which the Lord had said to them, You shall not do this thing. Yet the Lord warned Israel and Judah through all his prophets and every seer, saying, Turn away, turn from your evil ways and keep my commandments, my statutes, according to all the law which I commanded your fathers, which I sent to you through my servants the prophets. However, they did not listen, but stiffened their neck like their fathers who did not believe in the Lord their God. They rejected his statutes and his covenant which he made with their fathers and his warnings with which he warned them. And they followed vanity and became vain and went after the nations which surrounded them concerning which the Lord had commanded them not to do like them. They forsook all the commands of the Lord their God and made for themselves molten images, even two calves and made an Asherah and worshipped all the host of heaven and served Baal. Then they made their sons and daughters pass through the fire and practice divination and enchantments and sold themselves to do evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking Him. So, so, here's the result. The Lord was very angry with Israel and removed them from His sight. Now there's another interesting thought. How does an all-knowing, all-seeing, all-wise God have something removed from His sight? You have to kind of ponder on that a little bit. That's a powerful statement. None was left except the tribe of Judah. So Israel's taken into captivity. The Assyrians came, conquered, removed them from the land. Also, verse 19 goes on, Judah did not keep the commandments of the Lord their God, but walked in the customs which Israel had introduced. The Lord rejected all the descendants of Israel and afflicted them and gave them into the hand of plunderers until he had cast them out of his sight. When he had torn Israel from the house of David, they made Jeroboam the son of Nebat king. Then Jeroboam drove Israel away from following the Lord and made them commit a great sin. The sons of Israel walked in all the sins of Jeroboam, which he did. They did not depart from them until the Lord removed Israel from his sight. And so he spoke through all his servants and prophets. So Israel was carried away into exile. And the very same thing, of course, happened to Judah, right? Taken into the Babylonians came, took them into captivity. God judged his people. So there's five things that Israel was guilty of. Five things that impressed me as I read this chapter and reflected on it. And if we're going to restore the nation in which we live, we need to do the opposite of what Israel did. Does that make sense? So I've kind of flipped each of these on their head. So for example... The first thing that impresses me in this chapter is that Israel and Judah, God's people, had forsaken His commandments. They turned their back on Him. So instead of forsaking God's Word, forsaking God's commandment, we need to give respect and even reverence to God's commandments. Our nation has drifted so far from the Word of God. Drifted so far from the commands of the Lord. We need respect. We need reverence for God's commandments. In Deuteronomy chapter 30, it says this. And this is Moses communicating God's truth to the people of God before they go into the land. In Deuteronomy 30. Um, I've given you a whole bunch of scripture in your, in your notes, and I'm only going to touch on one or two of them along the way. 
But in Deuteronomy 30, the Lord your God will prosper you abundantly in all the work of your hand, the offspring of your body, the offspring of your cattle, the produce of your ground. For the Lord will again rejoice over you for good, just as he rejoiced over your fathers. If. If. Is there ever an if in God's promises to bless his people? You know, there's lots of unconditional promises. God has promised His people that the land of Israel would be theirs forever. But along the way, we find these phrases, if. God's going to bless, He's going to bless, He's going to bless, if you obey the Lord your God, commence His statutes, which are written in the book of the law. If you turn to the Lord your God with all your heart and soul, for this commandment which I command you today is not too difficult for you, nor is it out of reach. And the passage goes on to say these commandments that, that God has given to us, they're not too high. They're not up in the heavens where we can't reach and get them. They're right here. They're nearby. They're close. They're doable. You know, parents, if they correctly discipline their children, don't discipline their children for acting childishly or foolishly. They discipline, discipline their children because they act rebelliously. Discipline is a response to rebellion. And that's exactly what God was up to in the lives of His people. He had given them clear instructions, clear commandments, and they had chosen to not. And we were sharing together and praying together for you all. And uh, Lulu shared with us about her carrot cake recipe. That uh, she was planning to make a carrot cake but she had lost her recipe and couldn't find it. So she thought, well, I'll just go online and find another recipe and it'll, it'll all be good. And the carrot cake that she produced was totally and incredibly uneatable. Just, you know, just was... Now, she's since recovered from that and found another recipe and, and produced an awesome carrot cake, which sadly is all gone. But, you know, she lost her recipe. Somewhere. It's somewhere. We don't know where. Here's the people of God. They have God's recipe for life. You and I have God's recipe for life, right? God's given us His recipe for life. And what happens when we lay it aside and forget it and don't follow it? We find ourselves in God's uh, discipline. And so He disciplined His people because they had forsaken His commandments we need to respond with respect and, and reverence for the Scriptures. A second thing that impressed me in this passage was that Israel and Judah both had followed idols and pagan practices of the nations around them. The people of God were always interested in what other nations were doing. Why did they want a king? Everybody else had a king. We want a king. And their whole... You know, when you think about it logically, they went into the land. God went before them. God enabled them to drive out all these pagan nations with all their pagan immoral practices. And when Judah and Israel, when God's people went into the land, how did they want to conduct life? The exact same way as the people that were just driven out. Does that make any sense on any level? But that's what they did. Are we guilty of that in our own lives? You know, when I was uh, in youth ministry, I remember one of the 
One of the things that I was always very conscious of with Jews, number one issues in the life of young boys and girls in their junior high years is summarized in two words. Both start with the letter P as in Peter. It is peer pressure. And there's always this push, this pull to be like everybody else. You know, you had to have the clothes like everybody else. You had to have the little special notebook, you know, that was like you had to fit in. Does that happen to you and me in the culture in which we live? <laughs> Never, right? But God judged His people because they were following the pagan practices and all the idol worship, um, all the idols that they had pursued those nations that were already in the land and pushed them out, now they turn around and they're drawn to worship the same idols. That makes no sense to me. And yet I think today in the world in which you and I live, we don't worship objects of stone and wood like they did. What do we worship? Bicycles. Bicycles. Gee. Can I, can I? So, we worship cars, motorcycles, no, we're even. Um, yeah, I sent Ed a picture of this latest, greatest, newest e-bike. And he responded and says, mine's the Suzuki, you know. Um, I get it. I am the motor. Just remember that. So, yeah, you can worship bicycles. They can become, is, is that more important in my life than God is? You know, that's a good question to ask myself. But we worship celebrities, athletes, movie stars, musicians. We worship money. We worship possessions. We worship anything in your life and my life that has a higher priority than God becomes an idol to us. And so, instead of following after idols like the people of God did, we, we need to reject those practices in our lives that elevate themselves higher than our love and our worship for the Lord. And one of the questions you have to ask yourself is, so how do I keep God in the number one spot in my life? How do I keep God at the top of the list of my priorities? Does that just happen automatically because you wish it would? No. Does it happen automatically because you show up at church for an hour and a half on Sunday morning every week? No. It happens because it becomes a focus of my life and your life to keep God in that number one spot. I'm spending time with Him every day. Time in His Word. Time in prayer. He's in the top spot. He wasn't in the top spot with God's people. They followed after those idols and all those pagan practices. And we need to, to reject that. The greatest form of rebellion against God is to pursue other gods, other idols. Greatest form of rebellion. So they, they forsook God's commandment. We need to respect God's commandments. They followed after these pagan practices. We need to reject them. And then what struck, struck me in this passage third was they had f forgotten the Lord. He was left out. 
He wasn't even on the radar. Everything else in life consumed them, and God was out there somewhere. They forgot the Lord. How does that happen? Why does that happen? When does that happen? Well, if you were to take your Bible and turn back to Deuteronomy chapter 8, as Moses is preparing the people to go into the land, in Deuteronomy chapter 8, he, he's, he says to them in verse 6, Therefore you shall keep the commandments of the Lord your God to walk in His ways to fear Him. For the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land, a land of brooks of water, of fountains and springs, flowing forth in valleys and hills, a land of wheat and barley, vines and fig trees, pomegranates, a land of olive oil and honey, a land where you will eat food without scarcity, in which you will not lack Anything, a land whose stones are iron and out of whose hills you can dig copper. When you've eaten and are satisfied, you shall bless the Lord your God for the good land which He's given you. And so Moses is telling them, you're, you're going to go into the land. And it's going to be productive. It's going to be fruitful. You're going to have everything you need. You're going to lack nothing. Was that good news? Well, on the one hand, until you keep reading. Because he begins verse 11, my translation says, Beware. Beware that you do not forget the Lord your God by not keeping His commandments, His ordinances, His statutes, which I'm commanding you today. Otherwise, when you have eaten and are satisfied, you've built good houses and lived in them. When your, hearts, when your herds and your flocks multiply, your silver and gold multiply, all that you have multiplies. Then your heart will become proud and you will do what? Forget the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. He led you through the great and terrible wilderness with its fiery serpents and scorpions and thirsty ground where there was no water. He brought water for you out of the rock of Flint. In the, in the wilderness, He fed you manna, which your fathers did not know, that He might humble you, that He might test you to do good for you in the end. Otherwise, you may say in your heart, My power and the strength of My hand made me this wealth. But you shall remember the Lord your God, for it is He who is giving you power to make wealth, that He may confirm His covenant, which He swore to your fathers, as it is this day. It shall come about if you ever... Forget the Lord your God and go after other gods and serve them and worship them. I testify against you today that you will surely perish. Like the nations that the Lord makes to perish before you, so you shall perish because you would not listen to the voice of the Lord your God. What, what was the problem with the people of God? Why did they forget Him? He rescued them from Egypt. 400 years of slavery. He rescued them from Egypt, brought them into this promised land, took them for 40 years through this wilderness where their shoes didn't wear out, their clothes didn't wear out. He provided food and water, took care of them, brings them into the land that, uh, that's flowing, you know the phrase, flowing with milk and honey. What was it that caused them to forget all the great things that God had done for them? Complacency? They didn't need anything? Why didn't they need anything? Why were they complacent? They had everything. Wealth and affluence. When 
we have so much is we forget God. And we're not all at the same level of affluence in this country. That's certainly clear. But I'll tell you what, compared to the, the majority of the nations of the world around us, you and I are the richest people on the planet. And I think every day of uh, countries like the Central African Republic, where we've had missionaries forever, and God has blessed the work of the missionaries, and God's kingdom has expanded and grown. But today, the Central African Republic, on the list of all the nations in the world, is the second poorest country in the world. And when you compare what you and I have compared to nations like that, we are blessed with abundance. And what happens when you're blessed with abundance? Take it for granted. You don't need God. Got enough food to eat. Got a car that runs, hopefully. Got a bicycle that works instead of one that looks like this. And so God's people forgot Him. And the need in your life and my life and the need in this country is instead of forgetting Him, we would remember Him. Keep Him in the forefront. Thank Him every day for what He's done for us, what He's given to us. I mean, take away all the physical blessings that you and I enjoy in this country. Take them all away, and then just concentrate for a moment on the spiritual blessings, where the Scripture says He's blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places because of Jesus. And yet God did all those things for His people and they forgot Him. One of the challenges, I think, in the churches of America today, one of the challenges in our church, one of the challenges in our individual lives, is always the danger that in the midst of our spiritual life, we become what I call practical atheists. It is very easy to live your life day by day without, or it's possible to live your life day by day without that realization that God's present, God cares, God's here. We live as though He doesn't exist. Because we don't need Him. we got everything we need, right? We think we do. <clears throat> and so it's easy to become practical atheists. Prosperity dulls our sense of need for the Lord. There's an old hymn that says, Every hour I need Thee. Every hour. And I would add that means every minute and every second, right? We need the Lord. And somehow we need to be reminded of that. I don't, I don't think that happens just automatically in our lives. So they forsook God's commandments. They followed the pagan practices. They forgot the Lord. And then fourthly on my list is they found temporary satisfaction in immoral practices. And in response to that, we need to do the opposite and refuse to embrace immoral practices in our lives. You and I live in an immoral culture. Do you realize that? Are you conscious of that? We live in an immoral culture. And whether you think of that in terms of issues like abortion, 
You think of that in terms of sexual behavior and habits that dominate our culture. We live in an immoral culture. And I'm not suggesting that everybody needs to do what I've chosen to do. But I've chosen to unplug from television because so much of it is just filled with immoral messages, immoral pictures, stuff I don't need to see, stuff I don't need to hear. Other people are better than me. Other people are stronger than me. They can see those things, hear those things, and I guess they're good. I just couldn't do that anymore. And I think of the movies that are produced and and. You know, people tell me often, Roy, you need to be more in touch with contemporary culture. You don't watch television. You don't go see the movies. You don't listen to the music. And you're out of touch with contemporary culture. And my response is, you know, I'm so overwhelmed by contemporary culture. I couldn't imagine what it would be like if I was doing all the movies and TV things. Because the culture is in our face every day, isn't it? It is. And God's people were living lives of immorality. Just like the nations around them. They wanted to be just like everybody else. They they wanted what they had. My wife loves old classic movies. And so for our anniversary and her birthday this last July, she gave me a list of old classics that she wanted. And so I started scouring store nearby, the internet. One of the movies that she loves is the old movie, The Ten Commandments. You know, great great old movie. And uh, just just a, a classic, classic movie. And I was reminded of that as I was thinking about this. Because in Hebrews chapter 11, it says of Moses, By faith Moses, when he came of age refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. Now, if you've seen the Ten Commandments and saw how that that theme was portrayed, all the glory that Moses experienced, all the bennies he had because he was the son of Pharaoh's daughter and had a place of prominence. and that, That scripture in Hebrews 11 goes on to say that even he refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather... To suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season. That's a powerful statement. Choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season. That's one of the reasons why God judged the people of God. Because they were pursuing those pleasures. They found temporary satisfaction in immoral practices, and we need to refuse to do that in our lives. We need to refuse to do that. And then the fifth thing that struck me in this chapter is they failed to respond to God's warnings. God constantly sent prophets to his people. Guys like Isaiah, Jeremiah, Hosea, all these, all these prophets that came and warned them. This is what's going to happen. This is what God's going to do. And their basic response to everything that God warned them and told them was what? Eh. 
ignored it. Didn't respond. So, they failed to respond to God's warnings. And you and I need to respond to the warnings that God gives us. Whether He gives us warnings through Christian pastors on the radio, whether He gives us warnings, certainly a lot of warnings in this book, right? Or whether He gives us warnings on a Sunday morning in this space, we need to respond to warnings. Any of you parents ever warned your children, given a warning to a child? You know, wow, he probably he still needs warnings. When you give warnings to your child, what's your hope? They'll obey. They'll respond. That's always your hope. Anyone ever been... I don't, you may not want to raise your hand on this one. Anyone ever been pulled over by a police officer who gave you a warning instead of a ticket? I've never had that luck either. I always got a ticket. I hope for a warning. I'd be happy with a warning instead of a ticket, right? But when a police officer pulls you over and he gives you a warning, what's his hope? What's his expectation? That that warning is going to cause you to change your behavior. That's what warnings are intended to do. You warn your child and hope that behavior will change. Now, in the city in which I live, we have a, an extra police car, apparently, because periodically I notice around town they park that empty extra police car in kind of a prominent place where people will see it as they're driving. And these, the places where they tend to park it are on some of the main streets that are busier where traffic goes faster. So why do they park that dummy police car on the side of the road where everybody can see it? It's a warning. Whoops, got to slow down. Are you ever driving on the freeway and you're hauling along and you're doing 75, 80, traffic around you is doing 85, 90, and they're just bomb. All of a sudden, all the red lights come on and everybody's slowing down. And you wonder what happened. Was there an accident? And then you realize there's a police car over on the, you know. The intention of warnings is to get our attention and to change our behavior. A nation commits suicide when it forsakes God's Word, when it forsakes God's commandments, when it chooses to live in a manner contrary to what the Scriptures teach. Nations commit suicide. So of those five things on my list, how many of those five things is the United States of America guilty of? Five for five. We score 100%. Hey! Perhaps a more personal question is how many of those five characteristics are true in my life? Or in your life? And if you identify in those five characteristics places that might be true in your life, then the positive side of the grid that I've tried to suggest that instead of forsaking the Lord, His commandments, we would respect and revere His commandments. How, how am I doing on that one? Instead of following after the pagan practices of the culture in which we live, I'm rejecting those practices. 
how am I doing on that one? Um, how am I doing on forgetting the Lord? Am I guilty at times of being a practical atheist? Atheist. Do I live my life every day with a recognition and a consciousness of His presence and His care in my life? How am I doing on finding satisfaction in immoral practices, immoral, immoral behavior? I need to reject and refuse that. How am I doing on heeding God's warnings? Because I'm convinced that the way to restore a nation and the way that a nation is restored in this country, it isn't going to happen, it isn't going to start in Washington, D.C. Right? It's not going to start in Washington, D.C. It's not going to start in Sacramento. It's going to start where? It's going to start right here. It's going to start in the church of God. It can start right here in this space, in this building in each of our hearts, in each of our lives. Second Chronicles 7.14 is still true. If my people, who are called by my name, will humble themselves, pray, seek my face, turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven, will heal their land and forgive their sin. And so we need to submit to God, humble ourselves, Prayer thing. You notice that? Every Sunday we kind of keep circling back to that prayer thing. Where we started several weeks ago in 1 Timothy 2. I urge then, first of all, that prayers and entreaties and supplications with thanksgiving be made for all men, especially for kings and those in authority. We, just, we kind of keep circling back to that prayer thing. We need to humble ourselves. We need to pray. We need to turn from our wicked ways. And God's promise is what? I'll heal their land. Hear from heaven, heal their land, forgive their sin. And yes, that was a promise made to Israel several hundreds of years ago. And no, that's not a promise made to the United States of America. But is there still a principle there in place today? Is there still value for us as God's people to humble ourselves and pray and seek His face and turn from wickedness, turn from sin? I think so. A nation commits suicide when it forsakes the Lord and His commandments. And so it's time for us to do our part in the restoration of this nation. It's not going to start in Washington, D.C. It's not going to start in Sacramento. It's not going to depend on where this election winds up and who winds up as president of the country. It's going to depend on God's people. Humbling ourselves, praying, seeking God's face, drawing closer to Him. And then He'll promise to heal our land. Lord, make that our prayer this morning in each of our lives. I pray that by Your Holy Spirit, You would kind of poke and prod in our hearts and lives. Help us to see places and ways perhaps in our lives where we're a little bit like the people of God in the Old Testament, like Judah, like Israel. Help us to see that need in our lives to draw near to You, to seek Your face, to humble ourselves, to pray. 
Lord, our confidence is not in kings. It's not in presidents. It's not in governors for sure. It's not in senators and congresspeople. Our hope is in you. Our hope is in you. And so, Lord, I pray this morning by your Holy Spirit that you would give to each one of us an awareness in our own hearts and lives. What what do I need to do in my life, in my heart? Where does that restoration need to start for me? Lord, we'd love to see this nation restored to following your word, pursuing truth of Scripture. And we realize it starts with us in our hearts. Life easier. But because, Lord, bottom line, it's about your glory. That you would receive honor and glory. Would you be glorified? Would you be honored in each of our lives, regardless of what happens in this country? Might we be men and women who are restored to the fullness of what you want us to be as we walk with you and live for you in this pagan, ungodly culture. Help us to be the light in this dark world is our prayer together in Jesus' name. Amen. Coming back to the heart of 
Well, if we can keep that clear in our minds, we're ahead of the game. It's all about Jesus, right? So I want to say to all of those that are coming in on YouTube and participating that way, uh, we sure do miss you and look forward to seeing you soon. Hope you're back here with us and uh, we'd love to see that happen. And so this morning, my prayer is that uh, you would leave this place empowered by God's grace, the love of Jesus comfort, the care of His Holy Spirit, that we might be lights shining bright in this dark world. That needs to be our prayer every day. Lord, help me to be a blessing to those I'm with. Lord, help me to be a light in the dark place, whether that's your neighborhood, your workplace, wherever it is, God wants us to let our lights so shine before men that they may see our good works and glorify our Father who's in heaven. May that be true in my life and may that be true in your life this week is my prayer. Have a great week.